Welcome to the Send Parenting Podcast. I'm your neurodiverse host, Dr. Olivia Kessel. And more importantly, I'm mother to my wonderfully neurodivergent daughter, Alexandra, who really inspired this podcast. As a veteran in navigating the world of neurodiversity in a UK education system, I've uncovered a wealth of misinformation alongside many answers and solutions that were never taught to me in medical school or in any of the parenting handbooks. Each week on this podcast, I will be bringing the experts to your ears to empower you on your parenting crusade. In this episode, and in honor of ADHD Awareness Month, we've invited Dr. Giaroli onto the podcast. Dr. Giaroli is a consultant, child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist specializing in neurodevelopmental conditions, such as ADHD, autism, tics, and Tourette's, across the lifespan from childhood to adulthood, and also other childhood conditions such as anxiety, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and bipolar disorder. In 2014, Dr. Giaroli founded the Giaroli Center. Really, due to the lack of services offered to children and young adults in the NHS and fueled by his frustration to ensure that patients and parents receive better services. Today, we'll be talking to him in great detail about the treatment of ADHD and anxiety from a pharmacological and medical viewpoint. He has an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience and is really able to explain the complexities of treatment options, both in ADHD and anxiety in a way that is understandable. I would highly recommend listening to this podcast. So welcome, Dr. Giaroli, to the Send Parenting Podcast. I am really excited to have you on the podcast as a guest today to show us not only your passion for neurodiversity, but also your pharmacological or medical knowledge in terms of treatments for individuals with ADHD, anxiety, sleep disorders. There's so much information out there, both on social media and on the web, and a lot of misinformation. So I know there's a lot of confusion. And so I'm really looking forward to, and I know my listeners will, to kind of get your esteemed opinion so that then we're empowered to make our decisions as to whether or not we want to go down a pharmacological route with our children. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I guess I'd like to kick it off maybe with telling us a little bit about your background and your passion and how it led you to forming the GRLE Center. Right. So I'm, uh, by background, I'm a physician, so I'm a medical doctor, trained in Italy, and then trained in adult psychiatry in Verona, which was a WHO center. Then uh, I moved to Australia, <clears throat> where I pursue my passions, actually, was were children. So I specialize in child adolescent psychiatry in Melbourne. And then I came to the UK <clears throat> in 2007 as a consultant in an East London um, trust. And I worked as a child adolescent psychiatrist ever since. Um, and uh, since the very beginning, I developed a passion for um, neurodevelopmental conditions um, because they were so gratifying in not only in the, uh, in the diagnostic aspect, but extremely gratifying in the success. So it was wonderful to start to see my patients with ADHD flourishing after being diagnosed and then treated. Flourishing from, you know, in several settings, not only school, but also home, friendship, etc. And so it is, it, is, uh, it is a type of job that gives you a lot of satisfaction when you see your patients really getting better and really start to thrive in life. 
So I worked in the NHS for several years, and then I started to struggle with the delay in offering service uh, to, to our patients. I started to work in private practice, very much developing on my passion, which was neurodevelopmental conditions. And that's why I started, actually, 2009 is when I started private practice, but um, I then went fully into private practice, made this big jump in 2014 to fully dedicate myself to private practice and to, and to research at the time uh, with the UCL. And, uh, and then I continued, and that's, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how you say that because, you know, it, 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 it does mirror what my experience has been with Alexandra, and I've shared on this podcast that she's been actually diagnosed at your center with ADHD and put on medication at your center. And for me, it's been like a, a, a light switch has been turned on, and I notice it at home in terms of how she's able to, you know, shower herself, get her bag ready. She's just a different child. And it reminds me of when I've worked with Parkinson's patients and you give them to a dopa and they come back to life again. But um, I must say there's, you know, what, how does it work? You know, how does this ADHD medicine have such an impact? And I know it has a differing impact in terms of some children respond, some children don't respond. It maybe has been overprescribed. Um, I'd love to unpick some of that, um, that story yeah. with you. Well, and you know, this story comes with controversy. So that's interesting of how course. this story comes with controversy. <laughs> uh, given this is not a visible condition, um, you know, medicating something that is not visible has always raised controversy, from philosophical controversy to financial controversy to ethical controversies. You know, while I don't think there's ever been anyone who doubted the, the use of insulin in diabetes, for example, you know, it's a, it's a real condition. So you can see the condition. It's real because it exists. You see it. You see in the blood. You see the consequences. And so insulin makes sense. And then metformin makes sense. And all the other medication for diabetes type 1, type 2 make all sense. When the conditions are invisible, such as in psychiatry, medication can be controversial. Unless the patient is dangerous to society, then no one has any, con any problem in medicating someone who's dangerous to themselves or to others. But in condition where you do not see this immediate danger, and you know you can look at the depression at the very beginning, and now neurodevelopmental condition, and then children are involved, you can imagine why treating something which is not visible is not immediately lethal, is not doesn't put you at risk, or doesn't put other immediately at risk. Why treating it? Is it does it exist? Does it not? And this is why. The controversy about medicating something which is not visible, something which is not dangerous, and we can talk about that, and, 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 and medicating children. So that's why I'd like to start even with the controversy before talking about them. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's so true. And even the diagnosis, we might even have to take a step back yeah. even further because the diagnosis, I talked to a lot of parents. I had a parent I was talking to yesterday, and she's like, Olivia, we struggled till he, her child was 14 to get a diagnosis. And prior to that, they blamed her. They said, it's your parenting, it's your discipline, it's you're too gentle of a parent, you know, and, and it's not an uncommon story yeah. that it's, you know, it's just bad behavior. So I think we, we need to take a step back with, you know, actually even getting diagnosed with the condition. Uh, well, I do this job, so I do believe that this condition truly exists. And actually, uh, we have now so many um, biological correlates to support 
that this diagnosis exists. We know that it exists by just looking at it, but just phenomenologically, just observing. I think that, you know, if you're a teacher and if you're a clinician, if you're a parent having a child with ADHD, you know that it exists. I mean, you don't really have doubt that it exists. <laughs> so, but now we have so many strong correlate, which are, again, biological, which is the brain structure, the brain development, you know, how the development of certain area of the brain is delayed in children with ADHD, how the thickness of the gray matter differs, how the connectome differs in patients with ADHD versus not. We know genetically, we know polygenic risk scores. We, you know, in big GWAS studies, we now identify, you know, loci where <clears throat> there is, you know, polymorphism and it increases the risk is an aggregate. So, and we know this is a highly inheritable condition with a heritability of 80%. So it is a true condition. Also, the, 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 um, the Scandinavians have done incredible research uh, looking at mega database and looking how if this condition is untreated, this is the scary bit. You know, when we say, oh, this is not a danger, so we don't worry about that. We shouldn't medicate something. But if we look at this database of the condition untreated longitudinally, so over time, we know that it increases the risk of failed marriages, it increases the risk of substance use disorder, it increases the risk of having an unsuccessful career at work, but moreover, it increases the risk of jail and increases the risk of mortality, mortality per se. You know, and let alone just, you know, not just because increase of road traffic accident, which is connected again with the condition when it's untreated. But the, these does got studies that show the increase of mortalities in aggregate if ADHD is untreated versus not untreated. I think we're very somber in data. That's scary. And, you know, that's just not known. It's just not known by, you know, uh, the public or, or by parents because, you know, it's... um. You know, it is, as you say, a very scary thing to give your child a drug. But when you hear those that kind of data from large studies that have been over a long period of time, I think that's such an important thing to consider when you are looking at it. And I know, you know, um, we're going to go over how it works, but it's also, it's it's not necessarily a drug that you have to take for life. There's actually like a, a, a good period of time yeah. to take it where you actually can yeah. learn. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So again, the, when I say treatment, of course, we consider medication as part of the treatment, not the treatment as a whole. Because treatment, I just yes. let me spend two seconds about the other bit of Absolutely. the treatment. Because I mean, psychoeducation is itself very therapeutic for the environment, the family, the school, the patient themselves to understand the, con- the condition, understand better, put into play, to put in place accommodation to school environment, accommodation in the home environment. This is essential. It's part of the treatment, teaching the child how to create vicarious functions to to kind of compensate their difficulties. This is paramount, you know, executive function training, ADHD coaching, this all thing can help. Then we know there are the importance of sleep, the importance of exercise, the importance of nutrition. For, exa- for example, we've seen that in some patients, certain omega-3 can help. We know that in some patients, exclusion of artificial coloring can help. So we know there are other things that we can do, and now they are even developing. I mean, we are running a trial you know, King's College is running a trial and we are a PIC center, so we are recruiting for them and they are actually exploring the possibility of trigeminal nerve stimulation 
as a possibility of a non-pharmacological treatment. Actually, this has been FDA approved as an alternative to medication uh, in the States, and now we are looking at the possibility of, of it being in Europe too. So there are things that we can do now or they are in developing as alternative to medication, but medication remains an important, very important uh, part of the treatment with, I want to just say that very specifically, very specifically, that ADHD treatment, we have the biggest effect sizes in all psychiatry, meaning that these medication are the most effective medication in psychiatric medications, you know, with FX size of 1.2, 1.3 for the stimulants, that we compare to approximately 0.5 for antidepressants. The higher the number, the more effective the medication. So these are effective as or even more than asthma medication for the treatment of asthma. So we talk about highly effective medication. Yeah. And, you know, I completely agree with you. Uh, being a med- medical doctor myself, there's no point in just doing a drug therapy without having the, the wraparound holistic care because they work together synergistically. And, you know, the importance of having that ADHD coach, the nutrition, making sure they have the right building blocks for dopamine, um, the, the sleep, which is difficult. ADHD and sleep are, do not go hand in hand. And you know what? It was, it was such a relief to understand why I was struggling with my daughter for the last 12 years, not being able to sleep. You know, I remember mothers even saying, Oh, my child sleeps through the night. I'm like, you know, when, when she was a baby and I was like, Oh, well, soon, soon it'll happen for her. No, no, no. yeah. 70%, 70% <laughs> of kids. <laughs> 70% of kids with ADHD have a sleep problem, up to 70%. Wow. And you know what? That is so um, empowering as a, as a mother because, you know, you think like, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with them? Why can't they just sleep through the night? Why can't they get to sleep? And, um, you know, <clears throat> once you understand that, no, this is part of their physiological condition, and then you can think about, okay, what are the right things to put in place to help them to sleep? Absolutely. And again, uh, strategies are fundamental in the sleep. Behavioral strategies are fundamental around the sleep. But again, sometimes there is a bit of a role for medication here. Again, this is a, a more marginal role. But again, the potential use of melatonin is a first step that has been now even licensed in the treatment for ADHD could really have a bit, a, a bit of a role to play. It's, it's revolutionized my life, Dr. Gieroli. It has changed my life. We now have, you know, we, we have a bedtime routine. We always have the bedtime routine. And that's really important that that doesn't change, even if we're late, yep. you know, so how we do the bedtime routine, reading the book, getting into bed, all of that stays the same. But the addition of that melatonin in the evening, you know, 30 minutes before she goes to bed, and, and we have one that's, you know, helps her go to sleep and helps her stay, stay asleep. asleep. Yeah. She's actually sleeping the whole night in her bed and waking up at a good time and, you know, at sometimes six o'clock in the morning where she'd always be waking up at 4.35. So it's, it's been, for me, remarkable. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. Again, that, um, again, I, I don't want to disappoint the listener. I, of course, I, we're going to go into the bowel of the medication and understanding yes. exactly what they do. But, you know, forgive me if I give this kind of preamble before talking about the medication, because no, I really think it's very important because, you know, medication are not necessarily the panacea. They're a massive help. Yeah. But I do not want to give the idea that the parents are saying, okay, the medication, this is enough. No, all the rest, and especially if we're going to talk, and we are going to talk about what happens when the child grows, can we stop the medication? You know, can we take breaks from the medication? Indeed. If you're putting this scaffolding around, this scaffolding around that comes from the psychoeducation, the, the training, etc., you really have then the, the, 
the house that stands, even without medication at certain points. So um, I think that's very important to put that holistically all together. But I'm, I'm very, you know, please do fire up, you know, with your questions about the medication. I'm all ready. Yeah. So first of all, how does the medication work? Okay. And who does it work for and who doesn't it work Absol- for? Okay. Okay. This is a very interesting question. So let's divide medication into major categories. And I'm to- today I'm going to only talk about the medications that are licensed in the UK by the BNF in the treatment of ADHD in children. So I just want to make very clear my topic. So we're going to talk about children. And we're going to talk about medication that are licensed by the British National Formulary in the UK. And also, these are recommendations. I'm going to also follow the recommendation from the NICE guidelines. Yep. So this is the framework we're going to talk today about within. So the medication divide in two categories. We have stimulant medications and non-stimulant medication. And within each category, we have two types of medication for each category. So for the non-stimulant medication, we have atomoxidine, which is a noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, and we'll go into into the details of that. And then we have guanfacin, which is instead is a postsynaptic medication that works still on alpha-2A receptors, again, in the noradrenaline type of route. Then we have the stimulants. And we have the methylphenidate as one stimulant, and that is a dopamine and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor. And then we have the dexamphetamine, lisdexamphetamine family. This is, again, a noradrenaline and dopamine reuptake inhibitor, but with some extra function within the cell. So, again, for the listener, there are two main categories, stimulants and non-stimulants. The broad difference between these two categories is dopamine. So in the stimulants, they increase the amount of dopamine available to connect with the receptor. So they increase the dopamine in the brain that does something. In the non-stimulants, the dopamine is not directly increased, but they only work on noradrenaline. We will see that atomoxin increases a little bit of dopamine, but in different different type of ways. So, but this is, I think, is important is to categorize differently dopamine medication and noradrenaline medication for the stimulants and noradrenaline medication for the non-stimulants. Why do we talk about stimulants in a child that is already highly stimulated? This is a very interesting concept, and we do talk about stimulants uh, because they wake up neurons that otherwise are slightly sleepy in the brain. These are are interneurons that connect bits of the brain, especially in the prefrontal cortex, uh, precuneus, cerebellum, etc., that are very important to wake up these regions that are hypoactive, so they're not very active. They don't fire that well in ADHD. So you would expect an overactive brain. Actually, it's a slightly sleepy brain uh, in certain part of it. Uh, And then you have this this default mode network, which is this background noise, which is loud, 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 loud. So it's very hard to switch it off. And that's why children tend to get distracted by this loud brain they have. But this loud brain with this high default mode network that cannot be switched off at the same time has sleepy part of the brain that we need to wake up. Hence, the concept of stimulant medication. And the concept of non-stimulants is that they don't 
It's they still wake up, but they do not touch dopamine. So these are the main categories. I hope this, please tell me if it's not clear enough. Yeah. If I use jargon. No, no, but I think it's, it's really, it, it is clear and it's, it, it, it explains why. Cause you know, classically people think of an ADHD person as having too much energy, too much is switched on, but the way you've just explained it has illustrated that there is an area in the brain that is not so turned on that needs to be turned on to get those things like executive memory functioning to get the attention that that that, that they are struggling with absolutely absolutely yes and again the main fuel for these neurons is noradrenaline and dopamine hence we're talking about these two substances indeed the stimulant medication given this kind of double action you know on dopamine and noradrenaline are on studies and also in experience slightly more powerful and more effective than a non-stimulant. Hence, they are our first-liners. And especially methylphenidate, according to NICE guidelines, it is our first-liner. Why is it methylphenidate our first-liner? Because it is where the best ratio of effectiveness and side effects, so we can obtain the maximum results with the least possible side effects. Hence, that medication is a gentle stimulant that can really capture up to 70-75% of first uh, first treated respondents. So 70% of the first time uh, people treated, so drug-naive patients treated, actually do respond. And, uh, and then we can... Uh, try several type of medication if the first doesn't work given again in the scenario we have four medication to cover that so we reach up to in my clinical experience 90 95 percent of actually people treated with you know with different sequence again 70 percent respond to the first go but we can treat up to 90 95 percent of people with adhd Wow. So using those four types of drugs, you can actually get a result in 99.5% of your clients. 95% 95%. in general. Yeah. There is still a percentage, unfortunately, of patients that would not respond to anything, but it's a very small percentage. And is there any benefit between going down the stimulant versus the non-stimulant route, or is it just what the body is responding to? It's a totally individual response. So it's very much connected to the brain, how the brain responds to it, how well it how well it binds the medication in its receptors and how well it's metabolically your body gets rid of it. So that some kids, for example, churn it very quickly and they get rid of it. And so they need to adjust the dose and some medication go too fast in the system. So they need to change the medication. It's a purely individual response. And that's why we can switch between stimulants to non-stimulants and vice versa in order to cover this scenario. Moreover, moreover, the non-stimulant medication sometimes offer advantages when we have comorbidities. For example, in children that are highly anxious, in children that have uh, comorbid, for example, severe OCD, in children that have comorbid autism, uh, sometimes the non-stimulants come in a very gentle way and really fill out nicely a gap. For example, you know, ticks and Tourette, not necessarily the stimulants are bad, bad, bad for ticks and Tourette, but sometimes the non-stimulants come with the advantage to even reducing sometimes a little bit the symptoms of ticks and Tourette, for example, the guanfacin. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah. So it, it, it's, um, it's finding the right bespoke 
treatment for that child. Indeed, indeed. This is a completely uh, bespoke type of medicine. And of course, we start, unless there are specific reasons, completely with the guidelines with methylphenidate. But then from that point, we can really become creative around the child's needs. And after we see how the child responds to medication, to get the right medication for that specific child and the right dose for the child. It doesn't mean necessarily small child, small doses. Um, so that's also another <laughs> thing's interesting. I've seen very teeny children with high dose and very big teenagers on very small dose. So that really depends. I mean, there is a rule of thumb. Some medication really go pro kilo, such as the non-stimulants. The stimulants in general, we had an idea of 0.5 to 2 milligram pro kilo. But these are very, very indicative. As I mentioned, in clinical practice, you see very teeny children only responding to high dose and vice versa. Some very big boys or girls in their adolescent responding actually to very low dose. Again, this is the individuality of the response to medication. And then how does that go when a child starts and when do children usually start medication or when should they start medication? And then how does it change as their, you know, as their chemistry changes, as they go through their hormonal changes? How does that progress? And then when do you look at maybe going off it. So what, what's that journey look so, like? Rule of thumb, of course, every journey is different, but um, the diagnosis itself doesn't have massive validity be- before the school age, which means that if we make a diagnosis at the age of four, not necessarily has a validity or it doesn't necessarily stay true in time for two or three years. Once instead of diagnosis made at the age of eight, tend to be very valid even in the longitudinal aspect. So stay true in time. So uh, I would be very, with the younger the child, the more sure I want to be of the diagnosis. And the younger the child, the more I want to be sure that the the ADHD is impacting on the thriving in the school environment, the home environment. Uh, I become a little bit more, you know, lax with the use of medication with age, meaning that even if there is only one setting involved, for example, in a teenager, I think that's worth treating, it's worth medicating, even if just one setting is affected. For example, if school is highly affected or friendship is highly affected, it makes sense. But the youngest the child, I would want to see more setting involved. This is my personal opinion, my personal way approach. So I'm more, I need to be very careful the younger the child, careful on the validity of the diagnosis and careful about the impact of the condition in several areas. And with the older age, I don't get like more cavalierish. That's not what I'm saying. But I appreciate that a, a, an adolescent, might re- it might really matter a lot how social life is. Or close to exam, school really matters. So I'm, you know, and so even independent of the severity of, of the pervasiveness of the condition, if the child is very affected in one area, you know, we can really consider medication. Now, so we can start at any age, well, from the age of six in general onwards, um, because medication tend to have the licensing apart from the dexamphetamine slightly younger. But I would say as a rule of thumb, six, seven, when they are in school, we can start medication, yeah. And uh, another very important point is that once you start medication, you need to be aware that, especially the younger you are, the more your brain develops. So we need to see the child frequently, you know, as, as, as psychiatrists, because the child develops. We want to make sure that we are current in our treatment, current to the child's development. Do you see what I mean? So 
And then every year, I think, is a good, or every six months or every year, is a good point to review the need of medication, to try maybe a period, especially with stimulants, it's easier to try a period of the medication. How does it go? Do we still need it? Do we need to adjust the dose, etc.? And then another very important key point is adolescence, uh, where the brain develops even further. There is a massive spur of change during adolescence, and some kids start to need more medication, some kids need less medication, some, some kids don't need medication anymore. Um, and this is a very important turning point. So we need to be very careful about around adolescence also because there are other conditions that, that the child can accrue, which means that some kids can become a bit more anxious. Some kids can become a bit more depressed. Um, we can be becoming aware of, of presence of other type of neuro difficulties, you know, <clears throat> of, for example, autism, a high function autism spectrum disorder. We tend to diagnose them not at the age of four or five, but we tend to diagnose at the age of 10, 12, and a little bit later with girls. So this is the time in which we become more aware of comorbidities, and that's why we need to be very careful to adjust the medication according to the comorbidities. And then another very important point is post-school, in between high school and university and then post-universities. So if you really ask me what are the main crucial points, I would say adolescence, after GCSEs, A-levels, after uni. These are very three crucial points to reassess. I mean, the WHO said very clearly that we are adolescent up to 25. So our brain develops up to 25. And our social brain, our social interaction do develop until 25. Yeah. You know, I just learned that the other day about how long it takes us to actually develop. And I think then how much pressure we put on kids at 15 Indeed. and 16 is is probably misplaced a bit. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> but that... <laughs> that really clearly lays it lays it out in terms of what that journey would look like or how it could take different twists and turns during that treatment pathway and then i presume you know then you try having a drug taking them off the drug when they when they're past those those key points and see how they function i think it's very important and how they do it's very important i mean i think a mistake sometimes uh, from us from our physicians is that we've the, the patient is responding so well to the medication while changing it, which is fair enough. But I don't want to forget that a child is on medication. I always want to give a child, in crucial moment of their life, a chance to prove themselves how they manage without the medication. I wouldn't do it before a GCSE, you know. I wouldn't do it before an A-level, you know. I wouldn't do it in this very crucial moment of their life. But after this crucial moment, I think it's worth, I think it's worth, not worse, I think it's worth considering, considering how the child is managing with a lower dose of the medication or without the medication. Of course, you would try lower dose. So only in certain moment you should do it, but I think we should do it. We should remember, let's not leave the child forevermore on the medication until they get tired of it. Because this is the problem. And we know that children in the longitudinal studies Children or adolescent or adults eventually get tired of taking the medication. They stop taking the medication, you know. So why don't we instead letting them get tired or bored or annoyed or had enough or fed up with it? Why don't we have a dialogue with the patients, with the family, and to start to see points in which we say, okay, let's try to see at that point or at that point how we manage with a lower dose or without that. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, so important, you know, and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's making other questions just pop up in my mind because, you know, from my daughter and for some other kids who I know who are also on medication, when they have not been able to get their medication, okay. And then they're experiencing life back again, where they're, they're not having that, that stimulation in the areas of the brain that we mentioned, they don't like it, you know? So uh, my daughter this morning, cause we had a, 
a supply issue. Um, she said to me this morning, mommy, I, I, you know, at school, I noticed that they're running out of pills. So are, are you, and I mean, she, she's 12. It obviously means something to her that she's, she doesn't remind me to get milk. She doesn't even remind me to get chocolate, but she's like, mommy, I don't want, I don't want to experience that. Then I, you know, you need to, you need to make sure we get medication. And I've, it's not the first time I've heard that from other parents as well. So, and there's been some supply issues, I think, sometimes. Um, I, I saw something pop up on LinkedIn today in terms of supply issues. At the but, moment, um, October 23. So for the listener, the listener in the future, so maybe it's not a problem anymore. But uh, in October <laughs> 23, we are having major supply issues of uh, of the stimulant medication at the moment and certain dosage of even the atomoxin starting even in guanfacin. So um, it's a, it's a bit of a scary month, uh, to talk about medication. If you are taking medication, if you're really working very well, yes, there've been some supply issue that creates a lot of anxieties in the children, in their families. Yeah. It's interesting because they, they're having a, a webinar, I think on LinkedIn about what you can do while you're waiting. So looking at that holistic health, looking at meditation, looking at how you can bridge that gap. And I mean, I know I'm on HRT and that's also in short supply. And I also feel <laughs> that panic when it's when it's not available because it does me so much good being Indeed. on it so um yeah it's a it's a it's a weird world we live in i think post covid and there are other things i want to say again for the patients that are listening very shortly after we are recorded and there are experiencing supply issues while the stimulants you know it's safe to come off the stimulants safe from a biological point of view not safe from you know you still need to be very careful because your adhd can come back and therefore you're a slight more risk when you cross the road and all that stuff you know that we need to consider you know um but also the non-stimulant medication coming off abruptly in some cases can be a little bit dangerous especially with the guanfacine especially if you're a high dose so um, you, I suggest that the listener that are on guanfacine or atomoxidine to avoid any withdrawals uh, or any rebound effect from stopping this medication su- suddenly, I suggest to contact their clinician sooner than later to make sure what to do in case there is a shortage of this very medication. Because these are no medication that you can stop like that. You need really to, to cross state, to, 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 to come down slowly. Do we know the, know the reason why, or is that no? We I, don't, don't. I don't personally know. Manufacturer supply chain supply manufacturer manufacturer supply. I, I but definitely these. I'm not aware these are present in other countries. So I'm not sure there is anything to do with with that specific country or not. I'm not sure. It's, a, it's, it's interesting. And, and that's good advice for people who, who are out there and, and that, you know, for other, that if they're not on those particular ones that actually you can stop and start. And I know lots of families who maybe don't use the drugs during holidays or don't use the drugs be, because of those reasons that you said they don't struggle or it's not an issue for that parent to have the, the, the child. So they, they, they choose different, different times to take the drug and the child does fine uh, absolutely. on it. So but but even with the children, in children with the, um, stimulant medication, methylphenidate or dexamphetamine formulation, need to be careful if there is a lack of supply so they stop, stop is safing. But then restarting on a very high dose after they've been off for a period of time, that cannot be necessarily super uh, safe either. So I would just say if there is a supply issue, just contact the clinician and to really make sure yeah. there is a very specific and bespoke plan for the child in case there is a shortage of their medication anyway. So safer is to come off, yes, for those stimulant medication, apart from the ADHD creeping back, but then coming on is not necessarily, you know, if you are on 54 milligrams of methylphenidate, then if you have two weeks off and you want to restart, non- it could be jolty restarting on such a high dose if, yeah. if you had a period off. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, the message is loud and clear. Get back with your physician, make sure that you have a good action plan and also talk to your pharmacy to make sure to see what the supply looks like so that you know when to do it. Because there's always a delay in getting appointments. You know what I mean? It it sounds good. Get back in in touch with your physician. It's easier said than done sometimes. Absolutely. But this is a good time to send an email. Excellent. Well, is there anything you think we haven't discussed in terms of ADHD before we move on to anxiety? I think I'd like to mention very quickly about this medication come with side effects. So I want to be very careful, you know, with, yeah. you know, to talk very briefly about the side effects. And I would say that side effects tend to be quite low in terms of risk of side effects and tend to be not severe enough to stop the medication. So these are quite safe medication as a whole in general. In some kids, uh, when there is a history of cardiac problem, we might ask to, to do an ECG or to get a cardiac assessment just to be safe, to be very on the safe side. We tend to be very cautious as physicians because these medications are safe, but we want to make sure that we're using a healthy heart, etc. And there are some side effects such as appetite suppression. There are some side effects as, for example, as sleep delay onset and some other side effects as headache or slightly increasing, you know, slightly hyperhidrosis, so you sweat a bit more or you have a dry mouth. So it's important to inform the child and the family about these side effects. Most of them are short-lived. So most of them, once you adjust on the medication, they disappear. Some of them don't disappear, and therefore it's important that you talk to your physician to make sure that you are okay to tolerate them, because if you are not okay, we should really consider a change of the medication. And another thing is very important. I always ask my patients, how do you feel on this medication? If they don't feel good on the medication, if the medication doesn't sit well on them, what we call a negative subjective experience on this medication, tends to be a predictor of poor compliance and actually predict predictor of actually eventually the child will refuse to take it. So always listen to the child, ask them how they feel on the medication, especially after they settle after a couple of weeks. How do you feel now on the medication? Does it make you feel anxious? Does it sit on you? Is it okay? Because if it's not, I tend to listen to the child quite a lot and then consider change of the dose or change of medication. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, it's, it's so important to listen to them because they, they, you know, they, they, they will tell you the truth. That's the beauty of children. They usually tell you exactly how they're feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so now moving on to anxiety and, you know, um, it's not such a clear cut picture in terms of anxiety. And I have had, um, some parents, you know, inquire for me, Olivia, you know, my son has autism. He's super, super anxious. And I don't understand why my GP won't give him an anti-anxiety medication. And, you know, it's, I don't understand it. So I said, you know, this would be a great question to ask you while we were looking at ADHD because it is a different kettle of fish in terms of anxiety. So can you can you extrapolate a bit on, uh, again, you know, the treatment absolutely. of anxiety so, uh, in neurodiversity? Exactly. So I think this is very important, again, to frame our, again, the question. And again, it will be an answer within the topic of neurodiversity. So I'm going to talk about anxiety and treatment of anxiety within the neurodiversity conditions. So specifically, I'm going to talk about anxiety within ADHD and within autism. Yeah, so these are unfortunately uh, common comorbid conditions, so they can occur with ADHD and they can occur in autism. In ADHD, you tend to see them a little bit more with the inattentive type of ADHD, a little bit more frequently in girls and a little bit more frequently in uh, pre-adolescence, adolescence. In autism, you really see across the board. And sometimes you see anxiety manifested in autism as form of refusal uh, of demand avoidance 
or in terms of irritability and aggression. So it's interesting how these anxiety tend also to manifest themselves slightly differently, slightly more in girls with ADHD, slightly more around puberty. This is just a rule of thumb in general with ASD really across the board, girls and boys, and sometimes there's this manifestation of, of avoidance or irritability, etc. Yes, it's a different kettle of fish. So in terms of treatment and pharmacological treatment, while you, you heard me so enthusiastic about pharmacological treatment and excitement about treatment <laughs> connected with ADHD, I am myself extremely cautious in the pharmacological treatment of this symptom um, in general and specifically in these conditions in ADHD and autism. I'm not denying pharmacological treatment whatsoever. But I make sure that alternative treatment are attempted and attempted properly first. So with autism, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy modified to the fact that the child has autism, you know, with the rigidity connected to the autism. So CBT per se doesn't necessarily work that well. With autism, it needs to be modified to the condition. But again, or family therapy. Uh, and you know, in both ADHD and and AST and CBT purely for ADHD are definitely my to go first option, big time, and uh, um, and I would go a good go for this uh, therapy first, only if the patient is so de- still deteriorating, non responding at all to this form of behavioral cognitive type of intervention, we can consider medication. These are, in general, SSRIs, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so work on serotonin, a slightly different um, type of of pathway. In ADHD, if the child is treated, we need to be careful about interaction, drug interaction. Uh, I think it's very important which medications, for example, atomoxidine and, for example, fluoxidine, they don't go well too well together because one increases the, the plasma level of the other. So we need to be very careful about what medication we're using. And also, as a, as a clinical observation, I notice that when the child tends to be treated, the child with ADHD and very res- successfully responding on uh, the ADHD medication tend to curb a little bit the response when you start to add an SSRI. Yeah, so the responses can, in some cases, can be curbed. I have patients with both, and it works fantastically well. But in some cases, you see a little bit of a curbing of response. Um, the problem with these SSRIs is that it's a slightly longer commitment. You start normally 6 to 12 months for the medication. takes 3-4 weeks to have effect. And we have sometimes side effects with this medication, not only the nausea, the GI side effects that are known, but also activation, so the child gets restless. And there is warning, uh, up to 25, that the use of SSRI can increase suicidal ideation, can cause suicidal ideation. And that is something, again, that we take extremely seriously, we tell every time we start this treatment to the patients and the child, we want to a very collaborative approach. And again, another thing to consider is that there are no licensed medication for the treatment of anxiety for under 18. So there is, you know, so all these treatments are more study-based, but there is not a specific license for, for the treatment of SSRI. So we need to be very careful when we do prescribe this medication, start extremely low, go very slow. It's a paramount. And it sounds like, Exhausting other routes first is a better 100% idea. 100% is the only way forward. I think the starting medication yeah. to prematurely and having a very pharmacological attitude to the treatment of anxiety. I personally, this is my personal view, I think is the wrong attitude. I think we should really think about uh, the anxiety, how to treat the context of anxiety 
and the environment, therefore the situation, and the cognition and the response. And this you can only achieve that by family therapy or individual therapy first. And then the medication can be an adjunct treatment to this pre-existing um, form of psychological treatment. And how long, you know, how long is it before therapy works, in your opinion? Or does it differ so much from individual to individual that you can't actually put a you timeline on it? You can't put a timeline because, I mean, sometimes you have individuals respond extremely well. There are aspects specific to the therapy and aspects that are non-specific to the therapy, which means the therapeutic alliance, the feeling listened, the feeling heard. So, And then there are the aspects specific to that CBT or interpersonal or psychoanalytical, etc. And, uh, and uh, we know that both play a role and some child just, just being in that contest, being heard, feeling heard, feeling they develop a connection with the therapist is extremely containing and therapeutic. Some of them, they require to put in place the techniques that they learn in the therapy, and therefore it might take longer. You know, 6, 12, sometimes 18 sessions are needed. Yeah, so it's good to have that in your mind as a parent that, you know, to, to, that you're in it yeah. for the long game and to, you know, to really, um, because, no, you know, the, the risk of suicidal ideation is just, I mean, that's it's, massive. It's, you it know? is there, and um, it's a very rare event, but it is an event. It tends to happen more in certain presentation, not in every child, you know, when, uses, when there is already pre-existing depression, except there are some factors that tend to increase the potential risk and is a remote risk but it is a risk yeah um you know it, i think it's really great to hear you speak about the two different interventions uh for adhd and for anxiety because it it gives us a good picture of you as a physician that you're not just proponent of medicating you are looking at this from a very scientific and knowledge base and experience based from all of the children that you've looked after all around the world, it sounds like, from Italy to Australia uh, to England. <laughs> so that, that, that for me as a mother, gives validity and gives me security in, in what you've said. Um, so thank you for that. And I appreciate um, the time that you've given us today. Now, I always ask my uh, guests at the end of the podcast, what would be, and this is a difficult one in this subject, your three top tips that you would say to parents, this is what you should take away with you? Okay, so my first step is that do not overemphasize nor underemphasize the effect of pharmacological treatment in your child's journey. So I think we need to place it correctly at the right level of I like importance. That. I like that. So that's my first take-home message. The second message is that don't be uh, impatient when you're treating these conditions. You are here for the long run, so if your physician starts very prudently low and goes up slowly, don't be impatient. Start low and go slow. It's always a very effective mantra when it comes to psychopharmacology. And the third point is let your child speak about themselves. Uh, so, as you said, something very <laughs> true before is that the child tends to be extremely honest, and I found exactly that in my experience. The child is the truth mouse, mouth. So if they tell truth, they speak the truth. So listen to them. If they don't like something, listen to them. So this is a this is a, a, a it's it's. it's an invitation for parents and for clinicians. Sometimes we are at fault of just looking at that parent. And so what is your child's side effect? No, no, no. Let's ask the child, how do you feel on the medication? So really listening to the child. 
I think those are three great tips for us to take away, um, as well as all the other knowledge you've imparted today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening, Send Parenting Tribe. I know that you are listening by the amount of downloads we received, but to date, only six kind souls have rated the show on their preferred podcast platform. I'm not asking this to get nice feedback, although it is nice, but it's really a way for the algorithm to know and to then present this podcast to more people. I know when I started my journey with my wonderfully wired child, I would have loved to know where I could tap into empowering experts. It's just one little click right below where you press play. Wishing you and your family a happy week ahead.